You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good afternoon, everybody on the East Coast, and good morning to those of you in time zones further to the West. My colleague and friend Ivy just came zooming in at the last moment, and so I'm just smiling a little bit because she's safe at second base, but just by <laughs> just by the... Uh, the, the merest of margins. Ivy, it's great to see you. And um, Dennis McGill, her partner at Zellman, has uh, joined us today for our discussion on both Ivy's fantastic book, Gimme Shelter, as well as um, all the research that Zellman is putting out today. I want to start with just a quick anecdote from the last time Ivy and I spent time on the Walker webcast together. I generally speaking, spend somewhere between five and seven hours getting ready for the Walker webcast and build up pages of notes that are far more than I need to get through an hour with my guest. And so with most guests that I have on the Walker webcast, I, of my six pages of notes, I usually get through something between three and four pages. And there's been a rhythm after now having done the Walker webcast almost 80 times where I leave a lot on the table, if you will. The only person, only out of all of my guests, whose notes I have run through during the course of the webcast was my first webcast with Ivy. And I ran through my notes in 45 minutes. So the last 15 minutes of the last time I was on with Ivy was all ad-libbed. And the reason is that her responses to my questions were so good and so succinct that we just moved from question to question to question to question. And I think it's one of the reasons why well over 100,000 people have watched the replay of the first time I had Ivy on the Walker webcast, and it's a real thrill to have her back. And it's also great to have, Dennis, you're either the peanut butter to the jelly or the jelly to the peanut butter. But as Ivy says in her book, you have been an incredible partner to her throughout her time on Wall Street, as well as in the building of Zellman and Associates. And uh, it's great to have you with us. Let me dive in to give me shelter to start, because I think it's a great framework to focus first on, Ivy, your incredible book, your incredible career. And then as we move through that, we get to a point in the pre-Great Financial Crisis where you and Dennis put out a research piece that was a seminal piece, changed both of your lives, changed a lot of people's opinions of you on Wall Street for a period of time, and then flipped back to an incredible opinion of you guys when it was actually spot on. And then take that to where we are today and some of the research and some of the data and numbers that you're looking at today. So Ivy, in your book, you in, in your preface, you talk about a couple things that you learned during your career. First, ask for help. Second, network and establishing what you now have as an incredible network of friends, family, colleagues, and peers in the industry. Pay it forward. I think your book at its core is a pay it forward to try and give up and comers some insight into how you built your career and how you've been so successful. Don't be afraid if your background isn't a traditional background as it relates to a career, whether on Wall Street or anyone else. And the final one is take risks. Is that a fair summary of kind of the reasons on why you wrote the book and what you're hoping people would take away from it? Excellent. Excellent job. First, I apologize if I got you a little anxious, but I am never late. 
I live by punctuality, so apologize to getting nervous. But no, I, I wrote the book as a project that kind of started out with this idea that I could really provide some inspiration to young people. And hopefully that's what it, that it does in fact do. But what's been really fun is also the response I've had from people that have been, you know, 20, 30 year veterans, because it really gives them um, an ability to reminisce in their own career path. But it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, I feel like I've put myself out there quite vulnerable, but I think that it's important to pay it forward. So you were the only person in your Solomon Brothers analyst training program who'd gone to George Mason University. And when I read that, it resonated with me because I was the only person in my Harvard Business School class who went to St. Lawrence University, as well as the only St. Lawrence grad who was in my associate pool at Morgan Stanley. As you look back on it, what was the core skill or, if you will, personality trait that that outsider status helped you develop? Grit. Just total grit, passion, passion for success, wanting to be financially independent. And while unfortunately my father's fortunes, uh, we had been in a well-off situation, his career turned south and I was left on my own and I never wanted to experience that. And so I was very determined and just, you know, maybe the tomboy in me, you know, I was middle of three girls. I am the middle of three girls and, you know, very athletic. And I was determined to be a winner and successful. I will say from the pictures in your book, Ivy, it's hard to believe that at any point you were a tomboy, given your hair going from very big to kind of small to back out. It's a, I love watching the pictures of you throughout your life as you both aged as well as became, if you will, more and more professional in your overall demeanor and outlook. It was it was really fun to watch that. And I love the fact that you put those personal pictures in the book. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Actually, the big hair was the thing in the 80s. So, uh, you know, it was, I, was, I was quite a rocker, which is kind of why I utilized Gimme Shelter for this book, because it really signifies my persona. So it's a combination of professionalism and just good old classic rock and just growing up with a big focus on, on music when I was young. When you first started out at Arthur Young, which became Arthur Anderson, the accounting firm, you started out as an administrative assistant. And as you write in the book, that gave you a great appreciation for people who are in support roles. And in focusing on people who are in support roles, you've actually created a great network that has helped you at various times of both gaining insight or gaining access to people by treating those people as the great human beings that they are. You want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. And just to clarify, it was Ernst and Young from Arthur Young. In any case, oh, yeah. the- I'm sorry, that's right. No, not that's, Arthur okay. that's okay. Ernst I was thinking that many I, people listening. No. Like, Wait a minute. Um, no, mm-hmm. Ernst and Young, they're still around, unlike Arthur Anderson, which yeah. the, the demise of Enron. Right. Well, I think that, you know, having been an admin and appreciating, you know, the importance of that role and really being the gatekeeper to the person you report to and having that person, you know, have a personal connection with you and appreciating that they're working hard as well. And I think that whether it be Stuart Miller, who's the chairman of Lennar, Sandy Levy, every day when I speak to her, you know, I'm sure to ask about, you know, how was your weekend? How are the grandkids? Send me pictures. And, you know, I really become friendly with these people. And so when the shit hits the fan, excuse the language, and you really need that CEO, whether it be a public contact or private contact, you're going to get through the gatekeeper. And I can tell you, Kim Gray, who is my left arm, my right arm, every body part and Melinda Greenwich before her, you know, they're very protective of the C-suite executive. So it's for me, it's natural because I want to know about their lives. I want to know what the, what's going on in their family and how their latest vacation was. So it's really 
just a natural aspect of me. It wasn't really something that I thought about. It just happened. There's a quote in the book that says, quote, I get dizzy just talking to you, Ivy. When I read that, I'm pretty sure that that's in there and it was meant as a compliment of how insightful and how capable you are. But given how you write very openly and directly about sexism inside of Wall Street and the sexism that you came up against. I also couldn't help but read that and potentially interpret it as someone making an advance at you. And you talk about in in, in great detail being a, a beginning analyst at Solomon Brothers and someone whose name you disguise, but talking about the very inappropriate sexual advances that he made at you. And you go on to talk about sexism at other times throughout your career. And then in 2006, you were giving a talk uh, right before the housing crisis, and you basically told the audience that they ought to either short or get out of a position in a certain home builder. And that CEO was in the audience and came basically running up to you afterwards and almost hit you over. And you talk about standing up to him and basically not pushing him back, but with, with great confidence saying, back off. And if you want to talk about my opinion on your stock, go right ahead, but I'm not going to have you bully me. And I thought about Ivy in 2006 versus Ivy in 1989. And I sort of thought, how can more women who were in Ivy's position in 1989 take from the Ivy in 2006? And obviously, your reputation and confidence and job security and everything were materially different in 2006 than they were in 1989. But any thoughts on that? Well, to clarify again, I was actually at Solly from 90 to 92 in investment banking when I was sexually harassed. And honestly, Willie, I wish I could tell you that I handled it well and I you know, stood up to that man. Unfortunately, I didn't. I found myself sitting at a table at an HR arranged conference room with the head of investment banking. And it just is, it's just amazing to me because the only option they gave me with 15 people in the room and being... 25 years old, scared out of my mind and actually not even wanting to get him in trouble. It happened because he, I I was in a review where you had a coordinator that gave all the analysts and the 70 analysts that were in the two-year program feedback from their group that they work for. And one of them, you had raving reviews, except one guy. And I literally was like, sang like a bird. And they're like, well, it wasn't him. I'm like, oh shit. So then next thing you know, I'm in an HR you know, meeting arranged at a, and it's 15 people at the table. And all they wanted to do is move me out of the department. It never even dawned on them that maybe they should fire this guy. And now in hindsight, so all I, I begged them not to move me because I felt like I would be shamed, that I would have a label that would be forever following my career, that somehow she deserved it, something she did. She dressed too sexy. She's too wild. Whatever it was, I didn't want that label. And so rather than being moved, I persevered and things got better. It had already gotten better prior to the review. But if I can tell the women fast forward, you know, 20, 30 years later, you know, today, fortunately, we're in an environment where that's just unacceptable. It's, It's a completely different environment. So I think that we're fortunate today that that would never be the response, right? HR would never say, we want to move you. They would fire his ass. They'd be done with him. So that's the great news today. And I think that we all need to draw the line on what's inappropriate 
and what's like just guys being guys and being in the locker room and having thick skin. And I've got pretty damn thick skin, but I could tell you that that gentleman was Jerry Starkey, CEO of WCI Homes. And I was on stage talking about Investors Gone Wild, which was this incredible piece that we wrote, the thematic report that Dennis and I worked on, really taking you know the veil off what everybody knew, the emperor wearing no clothes, is that the market is just you know overwhelmed with investors. And I mentioned WCI was one of those many companies that had a tremendous amount of investors. And he came like a linebacker. I thought he was going to run me down. And I was like, yo, back off. You know, first of all, calm down. And I've had many other instances with CEOs that I had one CEO called me up after a conference call or no, it was because of something I wrote. And I, he's like, you, and I'm like, look, if you want to talk to me, I'm going to get my director of research on the phone. I'm not going to be spoken to the way you're speaking to me. Click. So I think you just have to know what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, and do the best you can to persevere in that stressful environment. I mean, I, I think my favorite line of the book that every woman can re- resonate or resonates with every woman is I'm literally seven months pregnant with my third child, the last of my three. And I am probably on my last trip that I can travel. And the CIO of a hedge fund said, how far along are you? And I said, I'm seven months, actually, it's my last trip. He goes, it's your first? I said, no, it's actually my third. I've gotten pretty good at this. And he goes, and how old are they? And I said, "Um, two and four. He's like, well, you should be home with them and you shouldn't be here. And I just honestly, Willie, was stunned. And I looked at my salesperson like, are you going to say something? And he didn't say anything. And I said, well, would you like to talk about housing? Because I am here. And that was it. But I didn't call him out on it because he was a big client. Today, God forbid that man said it to me today, it'd be a very different response. So sorry yeah. for the long-winded answer. No, but, uh, no, it's it, it, it's very telling. And you do tell a story when you were at Credit Suisse about the head of investment banking calling you up and oh, basically saying, we got a big client who's pissed as hell that you're not touting his stock as something people ought to buy and we're losing investment banking business because of it. And you actually, you held your rating. You didn't, you didn't change it just because the head of investment banking. I mean, that's huge tension for you and Dennis to have dealt with when you were both at Credit Suisse. Yeah, actually, uh, the quote from the head of investment banking is, do you know where your bread is buttered young lady and pulled me out of a meeting. I was at T-Row in Baltimore, which, you know, God forbid, like someone interrupt me with how important it was. And I don't know that I digested that call and sort of tried to explain to him our view, but I was really steadfast. In fact, I wasn't a very good research analyst in terms of investment banking friendliness because I didn't like a lot of deals, but in, in changing the rating, it never you know, it never crossed my mind that I would take that conversation and actually do anything other than what I believed in. So your future husband, David, when you were at Solomon Brothers, basically recommended to you to do channel checking. What's channel checking? So publicly traded companies provide a three-month update on their performance. And you as analysts are dependent upon updating your models and understanding their strategy from the C-suite. And he said, you know what? You you can't depend on management, public management teams. You need to go out into the field, talk to their competitors, talk to their suppliers and get the pulse of the market and learn from them. And that's what I did. And it was easy to do, Willie, because the industry was so fragmented. Back in the early 90s, the public builders accounted for less than 10% of new home sales compared to 42 plus percent today. So there were many private builders that I would meet at industry associations, or then I would ask private builders, do you have any suppliers that you can connect me with? And it was just constant. You know, my husband always jokes, oh, my wife likes meeting new industry executives more than she likes getting jewelry. And I would always say, that's not true. I'm quite blinged out. So it sounds funny, but in all fairness, I just 
knew that that would be a differentiator and talking to private companies, they don't have um, any type of bias of what their stock's going to do. And they, you know, saw my passion and, and felt the energy and what, that I was a student and wanted to learn. And they were more than happy to help me. So you made a, a point in the book that when you were on your first maternity leave, you tried not to watch the stocks that you cover because you want to take a real break. And you actually took a hiatus from actually watching the stocks. I'm, I'm curious whether you've kept with that as it relates to, because as you, as you described very accurately in the book, what happens in a stock from a day-to-day basis does not have any impact on your overall view of either an industry or an actual company and how they're going to perform over the short, medium, and, and longer term. Have you kept with not looking at the stock or uh, do you still watch the stocks you all cover very closely? I'm, I'm an addict. I mean, I, I watch the stocks, but not anywhere near the emotional volatility that I used to have. I mean, if I was recommending a stock and the stock went down, I could be in tears that night, like in, and within a small time frame, because it just meant that, you know, the market was saying I was wrong. So I've learned through really tough periods where Dennis and I were seriously wrong. I was being told I was going to, you know, ruin my career. And there were a lot of tears at night on the couch and feeling awful about the stocks going up in my face. After you've weathered one of those situations for a few years, you learn that, you know, the scorecard is not necessarily settled, even if it's a longer duration and just sticking to the fundamentals. But I don't know. What about you, Willie? Are you looking at your stock every day? I, I don't. And I'm, I'm going to, I'll tell quickly my side of it. And then I want to hear Dennis's and how closely he follows the stocks that he writes on. As a couple people know, um, in 2017, I went away for a week and didn't have my phone. Came back from that week, not seeing Walker Dollop stock, and it was probably one of the best weeks I've ever had. My stress level went down dramatically, and I realized while I was gone that previously I'd watch our stock. I'd come into the office, have a really productive day and the stock price would be down and I'd feel bad about my performance. And I'd have a day that I did nothing and the stock price would be up. And I felt like I accomplished a ton. And it's just, it has no, no bearing on, on, on anything other than like a thumbs up, you look good today or a thumbs down on Facebook, you, you didn't dress right. And so I gave it up. And uh, to this day, I only check our stock price two days after earnings. And other than events like last week where we went over $4 billion in market cap and I got inundated with lots of people saying congratulations and that's all great and good, I don't watch it. And it has made a big difference. The only other piece to it that has been really fun is that our team, as you well know, Ivy and Dennis, they, they redact our stock price from anything that I get to see. And so what ends up happening is that, you know, the team goes to great lengths to not show me the stock price between quarters, but we're doing everything from stock plans to all sorts of stuff that needs to have the stock price there. And invariably, I'll be in some meeting and someone will blurt out where our stock price is. And, and at least a couple of people in the room will go ashen, sort of thinking that someone has told me something I didn't want to hear. And of course, I hear it and just move on. But anyway, how about you, Dennis, as it relates to keeping track of the stocks that you all publish on? Yeah, I'm, I'm probably a little bit of the opposite of Ivy over time. I've, I've, sometimes she'll call me and say, have you seen what's going on today? And I may not have checked at all um, over the course of a day, but it's obviously in our job to understand what's happening and you want to be mindful of our clients are, are dealing with it every day and you're going to get questions about what's happening. So it's one of those data points that you have to be on top of and you have to understand the trends. But ultimately what we're thinking about, or I, I would think about more is what are the market prices telling me? What's the information that I should be ingesting about how people are thinking about these stocks? What are the driving factors? And sometimes it's meaningless. It's computers trading with computers and you're not learning much of anything. Other times you're learning something and it might be something that's interpreted incorrectly. So um, I think it's something where you have to, to your point, 
over the longer term, it's going to tell a much stronger story. And the more you shorten that up, the more it just becomes noise. And if you get distracted too much by the noise, then you're going to be taken off of the, the real task of the day. I want to jump in, Willie, because Dennis and I have been together for 21 years. He was a summer intern with me at Michigan, and he's like the opposite of everybody. You know, he's the academic brainiac that you can be in front of a computer other than to get up and brush his teeth. So he's the opposite of most people. We're all addicts watching the stock. I watched the 10-year yield more than I watched the equities, but Dennis is a unique breed in many ways. I would tell you, though, to, so, to show you my addiction, reflective is that my three children, whether they were three, five, and seven, mom, maybe not three, five, and seven, maybe five, seven, nine, mom, were the stocks green or red today? Because, you know, that could be like set my mood. You know, they even knew who Jeff Gunlock and Sam Zells was back in 2013 when, when everyone was saying that we were going to be wrong and home ownerships were, rates were going to plummet to 50%. They knew who Jeff Gunlock was. So it was kind of funny. So in 2005, you both published Investors Going Wild. And, um, you talk in your book, Ivy, a lot about the implications of publishing something that was so, I'll use a bunch of phrases, some of them don't even make sense, but counter-cyclical, counter-market, counter-business, counter-culture, counter-career, counter-everything. Like at that time coming out and saying, housing is overbuilt and oversupplied and we have a big comeuppance coming was very contrarian. And you talk in great detail about the next two years of person after person, the nickname you got of poison ivy and all sorts of other things. And when the, when the single family market rebounded at the end of 2007, and you'd started to see lights of, you know, basically your research saying, we're going to be right here. And then all of a sudden it started to turn and everyone's like, ah, see, you weren't right. You were only right for a period of time. And here we go. How'd you make it through that period of time? There were so few people out there who made that call. The entire lemming effect took everybody over the cliff and you all stood out there and stood by your research. How'd you do it? Well, really the collaboration of the industry executives that were really keeping us abreast of what was going on in the market. You know, hearing stories where you're talking to a builder who just lost in a beauty contest for buying large parcel of land where he just couldn't pencil return. And he'd ask the guy who bought it, well, why'd you buy it? I mean, it's crazy. How could you afford, how can you pay those numbers? And he's like, well, if I don't buy the land, I'm not going to have a job. Or talking to a mortgage executive who just did a loan for someone who doesn't have a job, but they just graduated college. And I'm like, how can you write them a loan? He goes, ah, Fannie and Freddie will buy it. It's fast and easy. You don't have to, you know, they liar loans. And it was the constant interaction with the industry to then marry with the aggregation of our data that really was the combination and, and Dennis together. I mean, we have many times where we're on the phone and we're just, you know, whining to one another as well as the rest of our team. And it's the collaboration of our team and, and recognizing that together we would persevere and just sticking with it. And there were times where we would get pretty nervous, you know, and, and when I was told by the head of product management that I'm going to ruin my career and I'm, I'm labeled a perma bear and I better upgrade the stocks. And I was like, Dennis, let's downgrade these damn stocks. And we did. It took us like 10 minutes in December of 06 and we downgraded everything and reiterated our sell. And we're just like, we are negative or we were, we were neutral and went to a reiterate uh, to a sell recommendation. So I don't know, Dennis, if you have any fond memories of that period, but it, it was tough some days. Yeah. And I, I remember a lot of conversations where your confidence gets shaken by going back to the stocks. You know, you have a right. scorecard that every day is telling you that you're potentially wrong. And there's a lot of public commentary suggesting that you're wrong. And people were reading from the market, right? Home prices were incredibly strong. Inventories were incredibly low. There was calls of very strong demographics at that time. People talking about a 70% home ownership rate from where we were. So all of these different signals that are out there and 
you have to just come back to the work that you're doing. If you're not doing your own proprietary work, you can be reshaped by all of that very quickly. And it's really hard to, to fight that crowd. But when you are doing your own proprietary work and you can anchor around something, every time we'd have the conversation of, well, maybe we are wrong. Maybe we should think of it. Maybe we should just be a little bit more positive. If it would make us more popular, it would get us back to being ranked number one II. And all those different things. And then you sit there and say, but how could you do that? Because you'd have to spin the data in an entirely incorrect way just to feed a message that you don't believe in. And so it was that conviction that, that you ultimately had to have in your own work. And I think it was one of the more amazing things from that time period, because among our clients who were taking that, that same position and believed in it, they had to hold that position for quite a while before it actually turned positive. And in the real world of managing money, where you're, you're managed or, or recognized on a quarterly basis to do that is takes so much confidence and endurance. And the guys, the John Paulson's of the world and Steve Eisman's, not only did they have the confidence to, to sustain the view, but even after it started to make money and you started to, to prove the worth, to go for five billions of profit after you had one billion or two billion or three billion, that's really impressive. And it's that conviction that I think we we ultimately had. And that the pride that I take in it is not so much to say, well, we were negative and it ended up falling apart, but it was the whys. What were the reasons why we were negative? The concerns around the mortgage lending and the affordability issues and the exuberance that was out there. If you can go back in history and look at what we wrote, we take a lot of pride in the fact that we were there for the right reasons as well. Well said. So obviously being on the research side, you all have significant limitations on where you can invest, but you're sitting here for a two-year period saying this thing is going to fall apart and you're two of few voices in the market doing it. Did you get to take positions in anything that would allow you to take advantage of your insight into a market that was about to fall apart? One of our biggest regrets personally, both my myself and my husband, but you know, we'll say we didn't because we had rules around we couldn't you know, own or be involved in the stocks that we covered. And so it seemed risky to me and I, I don't look good in orange. So I always kind of stay down the lane in the middle of the lane and don't do anything that could be even borderline. But, you know, I can say that the one thing that came to fruition is we started Zelman. So we did actually figure out a way to monetize it. Maybe not exactly the way I would have liked, but, uh, you know, I, I think, I don't know, Dennis, did you play any of the ways to take No, I wish they did. But I remember reading a book on John Paulson and some of the work that they were doing at the time. One of the points they made was that, well, home prices never go down, was what everybody was saying at that time. And that always supported the confidence of the marketplace. And some of the work that we had done was, you know, adjusting that for inflation and realizing that on a real basis, they'd gone down multiple times. And there was a chart that one of the analysts at Paulson had pulled together and showed it to John Paulson and said, look, this is home, home price inflation adjusted. It does go down. And that was not the crux of the call, but that was a big part of, of why they were so confident. And I remember talking to Ivy after, I said, wow, if only we needed something so simple as that and knew we could you know, trade these vehicles to monetize it, we would have been all over it. But we were so focused on our own research and the work and everything that we were doing. I don't even think that's where our brain was going at the time. Yeah. yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating because you all, Ivy, you pointed out in the book. You, I mean, you all were right there with the Pulsons of the world and the and everybody who who got it right. And and we've all read and all seen how difficult it was for them to both hold their positions while you know the market was soaring and everyone was saying you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, and then um, to turn around and, and and then hold the positions when they started to get into the money. As as Dennis, you accurately say, when you've gotten to a billion dollars of gains and all of a sudden it's well, let's hold a little bit longer and you get to three and you get to five. It's just unbelievable. But it is sort of unfortunate that you guys couldn't Take play advantage. all that stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. So let's fast forward now to the most recent research you all put out, because I think that 
if you go back to 2005 and the investors gone wild in that two-year period there where everyone said, no, markets are great. Everything's going to be perfect. Ivy, you, you point out in your book, a couple of people said to you, land value never goes down. And it's like, yeah, it actually does go down. Over long term, it may not, but in the short term period, it certainly can go down and quite, quite dramatically. And so you all just published something in, a, in your cradle to grave report that what I would call a, a reasonably bearish outlook on the US housing market. And it's really underpinned by the demographics of our country and the fact that birth rates rates have fallen dramatically and that we don't have the type of immigration that we used to have. And those two things, there's a line, Dennis, that you write in it that says housing is defenseless against slowing demographics. And I love that. It's sort of like, you can't do anything about this one. Housing is defenseless on this one. You want to dive in for a moment on sort of the the major tenets of what you're seeing that made you all come out with that report? Well, Dennis the demographer, I think that there's no question. I would point out just for everyone listening, there was uh, other thematic pieces that really separated us from everyone else as well, because the piece we did called Wonderland, and that was in October of 06, we published where we talked about builders actually writing off land, which was unheard of. Uh, We actually estimated that they would write off 20% of their overall land values. And we were really wrong because it was almost 60%. So, but when we said it, to your point, land couldn't go down, or we did a report called Mortgage Liquidity Du Jour Underestimated No More. So there was part of the Zellman platform is really about continuation of thematic pieces that will really shine a light on what's happening and, and critical to the future of the, of the housing market. So Dennis is the genius. He doesn't get as much visibility as I do, but he's the brainiac. And, and what we just have unbelievable the benefits of his just aggregation of data and intelligence. So take it away, Dennis, you're the man. Well, the other thing also, I think just to connect those dots from that period to today, we've written a lot of very optimistic things uh, over the last 10 years plus of of being an independent firm and very focused on the the entry-level housing market in 2014-15 and the reversal of the mortgage credit in 2014. And the the last time we took this deep dive on demographics as an example was in 2013 and the title was Coil Demographic Spring because we... We're arguing that there were a lot of cyclical effects that were going to unwind and putting that together with just normal population growth and so forth that we saw a big tailwind to the market overall. So we are willing to be on both sides of the the conversation. And I think what spurred us to publish Cradle to Grave is something that we've been thinking about and, and incorporating into our bigger picture thought process for a while, but to just get it into a, a singular report and really analyze a lot of these things because you have not only the market has taken off of late, and so you have a lot of people extrapolating near-term trends, but you also have this uh, pandemic period just really reshaped how everybody is living and thinking about things. So it, the 2020 decennial census coming out was sort of gravy on, on it all because you get a new set of data, but it really gives you an opportunity to take a step back and say, the pandemic has created all kinds of distortions around housing. Uh, we're all aware of, and we can get into some of them in more detail, but we are going to be left with poor underlying demographic demand when the dust settles. And that dust is settling sooner rather than later. And to understand the core demographics, it's really about how much the account, the, the population can grow. And then that inferred down to household formation and how much household formation can grow. And the reality of it is even before you even talk about the forecast is household formation has been falling for decades. And we are not growing the way we've grown historically. And if you don't grow the population, you don't grow households, you don't need incremental housing demand um, and supply. So as we look at it, just very simplistically, you're at this point where fertility rates are under pressure. 
That's been a multi-year phenomenon now, really since 2007. And we've had the baby boomers aging, able to save a lot of this over time, but they're now moving into their older years. Um, the number of deaths going to continue to climb for the foreseeable future. So by our math, by the end of this decade, the organic population growth of a country will be negative for the first time ever. And you can look at a country like Japan that has gone through this with about a 20-year lead time. It's an aging population and fertility rates falling. Their population growth uh, domestically went negative in 2005. It's been negative every year since, and it's going to be negative every year for as far as you can see. So you kind of know how this is going to play out on the demographic side between births and, and deaths. The question is, are what we about, going to see any what about The housing starts in Japan, they're down from that time, even when the population hadn't yet been under pressure, we saw housing starts down significantly. Yeah, and you can kind of tie this to the supply side here, but but end of the day, we're on a slowing, slowing trajectory, and that is ultimately what matters for housing demand. So as I hear that, the sort of the counter side to that that I want to say is, oh, well, immigration is going to save us, Dennis. That, yeah, you're, I got it. The fertility rates are down. And, and, and I've got a slide here just that I'll share quickly to allow people to uh, take a look at the slide that you have inside the report that does show that post-GFC slide in, in, in birth rates in the United States. And it's, it, it's pretty dramatic. And so, I mean, anyone who wants to kind of look at real data is to back up what you just said, look no further than that slide. Right. Absolutely. And the thing is, is that this is not unique to the U.S. This is happening globally. And, and a lot of the factors that have impacted it, it's hard to argue that they're going to reverse. Uh, so urbanization is a big part of it. Rural, rural population shifting to suburban and urban population. That's absolutely happening in this country. One of the things we talked about coming out of the 2020 data that no one really references is we had over 50% of the counties in this country have seen their population decline over the last 10 years, outright decline. And a lot of that is shifting to suburban areas and urban areas. But what also happens when you shift population from rural to urban and suburban is it, you tend to have fewer children, you tend to be more educated, tend to live at home a little bit longer because you're not getting married, not having children. So all of those things collectively tend to pressure fertility rates over time. We've seen it play out in every other developed nation across the globe. And it's happening here as well. And once it happens, it's very hard to reverse. So you, we can all sit back and hope that whether it's the other side of the pandemic or a better economy or what have you, that fertility rates are going to reverse, but it would go against everything that you've seen in other countries and it would go against the education of females. It would go against all of the things that we're seeing on young adults living young longer. As well, to your point, though, Willie, about immigration, recognizing that that is a way to solve the declining population. Because immigration today, though, and we look at legal immigrants coming into the country, 2020 was a fraction of what it had been prior to COVID, but the numbers aren't reversing. And in 2021, maybe maybe they will. But that, if we can get both sides of the aisle to agree that immigrants are actually going to allow for us to have an economy that can thrive, then maybe we would have you know a more positive outlook, but that is the solution. Yeah, we talk, we talk about that as a, an option because that's the big difference between us and Japan. If we want to look at the demographics of the organic population, it could tell you with pretty good certainty what's going to happen. We know people are going to age and we have a pretty good sense on fertility rates aren't going to reverse. So it all comes down to immigration. Japan doesn't have much immigration. Here, if we open the, the borders, we have way more demand than, we, than we're allowing supply for immigration. But if you put a policy in place that was an economic policy, of immigration and one that was to prevent a decline in population, it helps everything. 
it helps everything from a housing standpoint and certainly would help some of the labor bottlenecks and, and it would drive economic growth. You could carry this conversation from housing to the broader economy as well. A uh, shrinking population is not going to be good for overall GDP growth. So we really should be thinking about immigration from a economic standpoint. Um, there's going to be social elements to it. But if you approach it from an economic standpoint, there's a lot of this that you can hold. And more people is going to mean more, more housing from a growth standpoint. Has that economic message found its way to predominantly Republican senators and governors across the Sun Belt um, who should be understanding what the long-term implications are to their states and to their populations and to our rural economy if we don't get growth through immigration? I don't think so, because just based on the conversation that we've had coming out of this report from various people, I, I don't think that many people are focused on this at all. And even, even executives that have read the report and look at the, the cadence, sometimes you get the reaction is, okay, so what you're telling me is this is kind of a longer term problem, but I can still keep building today and, and everything's okay for the next couple of years. Is that, is that what I'm reading? So it's, a, it's almost finding the silver lining of, okay, we'll worry about this tomorrow. Um, but, do and that, but do that. So then give that, give that, because I mean, you talk about the seeds of oversupply are being planted today. So the direct question to that is, okay, great. You know, I don't see that seed. I don't see that small tree for quite some time. And it certainly doesn't provide shade for me for a very long period of time. So what's the, what's the time period we're talking about here? Right. That's, that's right. And, and the normalized demand that we get to uh, running through all these population and demographic things is about a million a year. That's household formation over the next 10 years as we see it, normalized household formation. Then you have to add on to that about 350,000 units for incremental vacancies and obsolescence replacement. So what we're really saying is you need to build about somewhere between a million, three million, four per year. If you look at completions today, so what's actually hitting the market for the consumer to see, that's about where you're at, a million, four, maybe a touch above when you bring in manufactured housing. But when you look at permits and starts, that pace is closer to a million, seven. And based on all the research we're doing, all the commentary in the marketplace about a shortage, all the confidence that's out there, all the capital that's out there and the yield chasing that's out there, I bet a lot of money that one seven is going higher in the near term versus lower. So if you're already have a pipeline and a backlog that's running above where you think mid-cycle should be, and you think that that's only going to continue to increase over the next couple of years, then every step higher is a seed that you're planting of oversupply. We hear a lot, sorry to interrupt, Dennis, the, the feedback we get is that, well, it's happening in the blue states. That's where household growth is slowing, you know, population is slowing. It's not a problem in Texas. It's not a problem in Arizona and, and, and Nevada, and certainly not in, in Florida and the, Cal- and the Carolinas. And I, I'll let Dennis give that give his response. But it's all about okay, your household growth might be better than let's say Ohio, but how much supply are you bringing to market? Because it feels like the one thing I could say in 30 years of following the housing market is that everybody wants to be in the same states. But Dennis, why don't you elaborate a little bit up? That's our biggest rebuttal or things that we hear from people. Well, it's not really happening in the market. I'm operating it. Right. And the point we've tried to make with the, the Japan analogy and even looking at slow states here in the U.S. that have struggled to grow for the last three, four, five decades is that as you shrink the population or you grow at a lower pace, the incremental supply you need to bring to market is less than what you've brought historically. So if somebody's looking at housing starts going back to 1970 or total housing supply and saying, well, that's the long-term average and we need to get back to that because we quote underbuilt last decade, then you're looking at the wrong math because you're looking at historical demographics that aren't true any longer and that don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. And whether you're looking at that nationally or you're looking at that across different states, it's the same argument. If you look at 
household formation this past decade by state and compare that to the prior decades, it's 25% lower across the country. There's only six states that are better. In two of those states, New York and Massachusetts, no one would have ever guessed. So even if you throw out the 1970s, which were really high growth, you're about 15% below this last decade from where you were. And even in high growth states that people talk about like Arizona, Nevada, North Carolina, et cetera, are about 10% plus lower. So no matter how you frame it, whichever area you're looking at, if you're using history as your guide to what we think supply needs to be, you're going to overshoot. The other way of thinking about this, just pulling some numbers together for this, if you go back to the 2000 to 2010 period, so the strongest household growth by state was in Arizona, Nevada, Idaho, Texas, and Utah, I think was, a, uh, yeah, Utah. So of those five, guess how much home prices went down peak to trough in those five states? 40% on average. So you could have sat there and all day long said and gotten the demand side right. Say, let me pick the five fastest growing areas of the country and just build there. But when everybody does that, it's a, it's a supply question as well. So but that's my feedback. But your peak to trough there, your peak to trough there is 2005 to 2007. So if you, your, your 2000 to 2010 number is actually a positive number, correct? No, you probably know. You probably trough closer to home prices probably didn't trough till 2010. 2009. Okay. Because of the yeah. lag effect. That's, I got it. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Right. So that's the harder part. You could sit here and I think put a lot of math behind what you think the demand should be in these different areas. And without question, the demand is going to be stronger in the areas of the country that are growing faster. I don't think anybody's debating that, that Texas and Florida and North Carolina grow faster than Ohio, Michigan, and New York. But at the same time, if everybody knows that, and if everybody's investing that way, then the big question is, well, how much supply are you going to bring? And that's where this really comes into play, because I think a lot of analyses are, are anchored in the confidence of, well, we have a housing shortage, and I know there's a lot of strong demand coming in those states. So what's the risk of building, overbuilding today? And the other thing, Willie, is just thinking about whether it be the biggest funds that um, have raised a tremendous amount of capital. They're looking at the resi asset class and saying, you know, that's the best opportunity relative to any other opportunity. And by the way, I'm promising, you know, a, a double digit levered return to the people I just raised money from. And you need to put that money to work. So where do, where should we go? And you see it, whether it be in the bill for rent strategy that we really liked until everybody's going to Phoenix and everybody's going to, you know, Houston, Dallas. And it's kind of like, you see all of this um, development that's in the pipeline and you're like, where are all these bodies going to come from? And right now investors are very prevalent in the marketplace again, whether it be private investors, institutional investors. I mean, the, just the, just the competitive nature of the market and second home ownership. I mean, I don't know about you, Willie, but I have more than one home. And I think that a lot of people that were concerned about being in dense markets, they decided that, you know what, I'm going to go in the suburbs of the tri-state area, for example, and I'm going to go buy a house, but I might also have a house in Florida as well. Or I'm currently in a rental, I'm in a single family rental home, and I'm waiting for my house to be built. So there's like dual home ownership or dual properties in, in people's lives today. And therefore, you can't really delineate what is true demand. And at some point, investors are not like as sticky as a primary owner who's going to stay around, you know, if rates go up, the cost of capital goes up, the stock market corrects, where, what happens to all the investors? And that's when you start to see home prices correct, or you don't get the lease ups that you expect, or you don't sell the spec units that you built. What do you do? Well, you got to monetize, you got to pay those investors. So you're going to sell and you're going to do what you can to move your inventory to monetize, which then puts pressure in those zip codes where everybody is concentrated. And that's what we're seeing right now is a lot of concentration risk. Dennis, um, I read something this week as it relates to New York 
office leasing. And one of the comments was that one Vanderbilt, which is the building that we're in in, in New York, um, is leased up and getting premium leases and it's all great because it's new inventory. It's a brand new building. It's somewhere everyone wants to be. But it and about three other buildings are the only ones that are getting that in New York and the rest of the office stock in New York is trading very, very poorly. As it relates to housing, is there something to be said that as the net worth of the American homeowner, the American citizen has inflated so much during the pandemic that there's going to be a continued desire to have new and that the real problem is going to be in old? I don't know. I think it depends because one, I think there's obviously different classes have benefited during the pandemic, right? It depends how much assets you own probably of how, how good you're feeling about the pandemic treated you. But I think the, the challenge with that is typically old is in the areas of the suburbs that are maybe higher school districts, better amenities, things that in some cases are a better lifestyle. So unfortunately, builders, whether they be for sale or for rent, often have to go to the areas that are more undeveloped to find the land to actually build the amount of units they want. So in some cases, you have to sacrifice location for new. If you're talking about urban infill type or suburban infill where it's knocked down rebuild, I could certainly see that market continuing to remain strong. Uh, but a lot of the, the conversation, even this goes back to the demand side is, you know, there is a, an affordability component to this and there is an aspect of what people want and what they can afford on a monthly basis don't always match up. And I think that's going to be a challenge as well as you look forward, as much as home prices have gone up, the idealist would be there's lots more we can build and hopefully people can then have a better, better house, better lifestyle that they're in, but it is going to come down to the income side. Right. So given the data points we're all seeing, I, you know, this week RealPage came out and said that apartment absorption in Q3 was the, the highest it's ever been. 255,000 units were absorbed in Q3. Rents across the board for all the public uh, apartment REITs up double digits in Q3. And we'll see them all report in the next couple of days, but we all know that they're getting 11, 13% rent increases. So when you have that kind of a quarter million units absorbed and double digit rent increases, back to what you said, Ivy, capital says, I want into that market. So as people sit there now, what, I mean, there's clearly opportunity to be made today and money to be made today on investing in the housing sector, whether single family, BFR, SFR, or in multi. So given the backdrop and the context of the sort of the arc that you and Dennis put out there as it relates to where demographics are going, how do people play this market? Well, I think, you know, we always know real estate is so localized. So, you know, it's really the competitive landscape within where they're operating. And I think that all of the typical things we look at, you know, job growth, the number of new units coming to market. So it's difficult to say, for instance, you know, Boise is a hot housing market, like beyond hot. And now we have several new builders, the public builders have entered Idaho that had never operated there before. I was on the phone with a builder in Wisconsin and I was speaking at the University of Wisconsin. So I want to do some homework and they're telling me Lennar is now in the market. So in some markets there where maybe the growth is not as robust as the call it red states, mile states, there is not as much competition. So it's a lot to do with competition and appreciating that you might be in Alabama and the publics aren't there. And you know what? The publics don't play nice in the sandbox. You know, because if they're developing and they need to monetize and turn 
and they're going to do so in a more aggressive way. So I feel like it's just understanding the supply demand dynamics, underpinnings of employment in those markets. You know, right now, pretty much every market's been very, very strong. So if you're a built rent operator, I would just say to you, maybe stay away from Phoenix because everybody's in Phoenix. You know, that, that's like, you know, the capital of, of all central to investing today. And it always has been, you know, Phoenix has been a very volatile market. Austin is really a market that seems frothy is to say the word correctly, you know, and there are other markets where there's no build for rent. Why not go to some of the, the blue states where no one else is operating, you know? And, you know, I think that it's the sheep mentality, you know, go, go against the grain, go the opposite way and find opportunities where, you know, you don't have the competitive pressure. I don't know, Dennis, if you want to jump in and say anything else. Well, I, I, I look at this a little differently too, in, in those multifamily stats would, would match up with some of the data that we're getting out of our, our survey that we do each month where, occupancy over the last three months, and we've been doing it for over 10 years, it's the highest of any period we've seen. But at the same time, delinquency and collection rates are poor and much worse than what we've seen. So if you adjust for and think of it as economic occupancy, you know what you're collecting, occupancy would actually be down versus where it was in 2019. And you, you just think about all the distortions that are out there in the market from the pandemic, where you've got eviction moratoriums, foreclosure moratoriums, you don't have to pay your student loans, um, you've got a tremendous amount of money that was sent from the government to every every household. The unemployment, extended unemployment benefits, all of these things have distorted the normal market and they're all fading away. So you are going to have to be left with real income growth, real financial circumstances for people. And you just look at some of the things and, and go back to where we were before the pandemic. We weren't all talking about a five or six, eight million housing unit shortage. Home prices were going to have their worst year since 2011. Not bad but it was going to be 4% growth. And you think about rent growth was decelerating before the pandemic. And what's happened since then? Well, we have fewer people employed. We, we have more deaths, which took more households out of the market. We have less immigration, which brought fewer people into the market. All of the things that drive primary demand have actually gotten worse through the pandemic. So why should we be so confident that the pandemic bump is now the new level that we extrapolate from? It actually seems like a very risky thing to extrapolate from, and to your, your original question, how do we think about it? How do we utilize it? It's very hard to time, but whether you're an investor or you're an operator, just think about it. Where, risk management. Where are you in the cycle? If you knew you were later cycle, you'd probably take different risks than if you knew you were in the middle of the cycle or early cycle. And I think what we're ultimately saying is if you're looking at pandemic activity, you're probably later cycle. I should say that many operators that I speak with are pre-selling any development to mitigate their risk that, that that way they, you know, to me, that seems like a great strategy. So, you know, if you're a merchant builder and you've pre-sold it while you're in development, kudos to you. But duration right now, if we think the housing market could start to be impacted by a higher cost of capital, higher taxes, you know, a lot of the things that the, the payback for all the stimulus and all of the, the debt that we've taken on as a nation, we've got to pay it back. I don't know when the Fed is going to start tapering. You know, I called Jay Powell, the bartender, you know, serving an overserved crowd that at some point the drunk does pass out. So when we can't really figure that out exactly, but you know, you just have to, we talk to people in your business and they will tell you it's nuts. They know it's nuts, but they have to keep putting the money to work. So, you know, how do you mitigate the risk? That's one strategy. Pre-sell everything you're developing. 
And so if we look at this and kind of going back to 2005, your report at that time was really focused mostly on the supply of single family housing, but then clearly, 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 clearly on the lending side, things started to really start to show up in, you know, you made the comment, Ivy, as it relates to fake loans and, 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 and robo signing and things of that nature that came into the market. And we really started to see it in 2006, 2007. From a lending standpoint, are either of you seeing anything in the markets today that make you take pause in what's happening? Most lenders out there are doing five, seven, 10 year term loans. It's one thing for a developer buyer today to say, hey, I'm not going to listen to that for today because there's an opportunity for me to either build and sell before the, the, before the curtain closes, if you will, or I can trade in and out before this window closes on me. But on the lending side, you're putting out a five, seven, 10 year loan. How do you both feel about the lending markets today as it relates to both single family and multifamily? Yeah, I, I think you can pretty confidently say that the mortgage underwriting quality is extremely high today and not even comparable to what was happening at that time, partly because of QM guidelines restricted. But part of it is that there's just so many buyers, a lot of times you can cherry pick your, your buyer in some cases. But if you said, is there abundant capital availability today, like there was then, that's certainly a, a strong parallel. And I think the, the other aspect of, if we're looking for the same boogeyman that's gotten the market every other time, you're probably going to miss the, the true driver of what's out there. It's not going to repeat itself exactly. And the way I kind of think about it is demand is going to be what it is. You know, that's going to materialize without any of us having any impact on it. If the question is, how do, how do developers interpret that demand? How sustainable is it? How much do you want to extrapolate? That's why we go back to trying to understand what's happening in the pandemic. What was happening back then was you had a lot of demand that was not primary demand. But if the developers thought it was primary demand, then it gave them confidence to build. And as the economists told them the demographics are good and homeownership rates are going up, then that's all they needed to hear. And if people are looking at today's demand environment and saying, well, that's true, that's telling me something, I need to go build, then that's what's going to happen. So it might not, the overbuilding can happen for different reasons, and it typically does happen for different reasons. I think if we're all going to wait around for the next mortgage bubble before we have to be worried, we're going to be waiting a while. It's something else that's going to probably snatch the market. But to your point, Willie, the leverage within, you know, development, construction lending and overall development, you know, there's not concerns around the amount of leverage. I mean, we have developers are, you know, some cases as high as 50% equity to 70% LTV. So that's not really the risk. What's the risk? The risk is that the returns aren't going to be there. Can you really say that rent rolls are going to be blended at 7%? I mean, how are you underwriting this? What are your assumptions when you're acquiring and or developing? And you know what? Jonathan Grace said it's a great time to sell. <laughs> you know, And you and I both have an unbelievable amount of respect for Jonathan Gray. And, and I think that people that are willing to go against the grain and recognize that I might not get this exactly right, but I should probably start to be thinking about maybe a little bit more of a risk-off strategy. And you know, when we talk to the Build for Rent guys, and there's, I can't imagine how many conversations some of our industry contacts have had with prospective Build for Rent partnerships. And anyone who can't tell you, the hedge funds I talk to, I get a call once a week from a Build for Rent operator. A lot of them are going out there developing and they're raising debt funds from high net worth individuals. And these are not highly levered, but these, these investors expect a return. So it's about not achieving those returns. And then what? Are they really long-term investors, Willie? Are they really going to stick around when they have empty houses they can't lease up? And then what do they do? They sell it to the for sale market and or the for sale guys, by the way, are going to be selling to the bill for rent guys because that's a great counter-cyclical way to monetize for them. 
And they're speculating right now because the supply chains are absolutely insane. And the bottlenecks are real and the inflation is massive. So as you start to think about all the speculative inventory coming to market, I would put the build for rent is somewhat speculative. They're not doing leasing up before they develop. So we're going to have a lot of shelter in a lot of markets that could arguably start to competing against one another. So again, it's about appreciating that leverage is not the problem. It's going to be, it's the returns that are going to matter. And then people are going to want their money back. Because you and I know, Willie, if we were invested in a fund and we didn't get paid, we wouldn't be happy. Right. Look, I got it. I got. I could keep going with the two of you, and yet again, you know, this time actually, my notes. I still, I'm, I'm good, Ivy. I still have a couple more questions oh, okay. to get to, so I'm, I'm going to run out of time on this one. But the the question I asked you last time we were together, Ivy, on the webcast, if you had to put a dollar into single family SFR, BFR, or multi, last time you said SFR, BFR, you have to put that dollar to work. You can't hold on to it, so you got to put it somewhere. You put it in single BFR, SFR, or multi. I would be buying um, existing product to renovate. I think that the age of the stock in the United States that's over 45 years old and much older east of the Mississippi needs refurbishment. And I think that the renovation market will remain very robust. So I would be investing in companies that are exposed to repair and remodel in resi. We think about the fact that today, my biggest concern is as the Fed may start tapering very shortly, and and that's a headwind. We we certainly are going to see rates higher. People are going to be disincentivized to move. I mean, we look every day at the number of people that are locked in below 4%, 30-year fixed rates. And right now, that's two-thirds roughly of the Americans that have a mortgage. At the end of 18, it was 39%. So just even looking at those that are below 3.75% was 54%. So what happens to that person that's had a tremendous amount of equity appreciation in their existing home? And they're gonna say, you know what? I'm not gonna move. I can't transfer that mortgage rate, but I'm gonna fix up the house. I'm gonna put in a new kitchen. I'm gonna put in a new bathroom. Let's redo the basement. So I think that's where the money's to be made. And the fix and flip market's a great market for those that want to stay to Dennis's point closer to into the job market, suburbia and urban. Dennis? So I would probably go a little bit of a different, so I agree with Ivy, but I think urban multifamily is a bit counterintuitive at this point, but so much of what we've talked about is intertwined, which is somewhat new. Typically you had the overbuild of single family in the early 2000s, but multifamily really wasn't at that time. And then things sort of reversed last decade. You've got everybody rolling to the same tune right now. So I think there's going to be a lot of this is going to impact all the sectors. But if you hit set on a relative basis, urban multifamilies kind of paid their price. You pulled a lot of suburban, a lot of people out to the suburbs, older, older people that would have potentially bought two, three years later, pulled them out early. You've had to replenish that with younger tenants, which isn't the best trade to make right now, but you've maybe taken it on the chin already there. And then you look at where the supply is coming. Clearly, all the single family for sale and for rent is in the suburbs, and even multifamily permits are skewing heavily to the suburbs now. So you roll out 12, 18 months, 24 months, supply picture might not be as onerous in the, multi, in the urban side. And if you believe the demographic side where you have young people continuing to stay young longer, you're going to continue to see that migration to urban areas, especially among the educated. So that will be the final word to my two friends, colleagues, which is really fun for me able to say, as well as partners. It's a real joy and honor to have both Ivy and Dennis join me today. Ivy, your book is a fantastic read, and I am greatly appreciative for you sharing your personal story and all that you have gone through to be as successful a mother and friend and family member and professional that you have been and all the things that made you the person you are. And so to anyone who has not read Give Me Shelter, you can download it on your Kindle like I did and read it really quickly, or you can wait. I don't know when you're coming out with your audio book, Ivy, but I know you're recording it this week. So it's going to be out soon enough. 
So anyway, it's a fantastic read to anyone who hasn't read it. Pick it up. And uh, thank you both for joining me. Hope everyone found this conversation to be engaging and stimulating. Have a, a great day. And we will be back next week with John Rice of Management Leadership for Tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Thank, thank you, Willie. See ya.